The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 15 Just to recap, um, we are at a point where um, uh, Zaphod has been shot twice, um, because the first time he, uh, he was shot, he was so surprised that he forgot to fall over. Uh, but the cricket robots are apparently, it seems, doing something. They're scouring the galaxy to uh, put together the elements of the cricket, uh, the wicket gate. And uh, Zaphod, uh, sorry, and, and uh, Arthur and um, and uh, Ford are uh, in the in- room of informational illusions aboard the spaceship uh, Bistro Math. Uh, getting fully genned up on the Cricket Wars, which is where we return to now. Thank you. So, here we go. Shh, said Slarty Bartfast. Listen and watch. Night had now fallen on ancient Cricket. The sky was dark and empty, The only light was coming from the nearby town, from which pleasant convivial sounds were drifting quietly on the breeze. They stood beneath a tree from which heady fragrances wafted around them. Arthur squatted and felt the informational illusion of the soil and the grass. He ran it through his fingers. The soil seemed heavy and rich, the grass strong. It was hard to avoid the impression that this was a thoroughly delightful place in all respects. The sky was, however, extremely blank and seemed to Arthur to cast a certain chill over the otherwise idyllic, if currently invisible, landscape. Still, he supposed, it's a question of what you're used to. He felt a tap on his shoulder and looked up. Slarty Bartfast was quietly directing his attention to something down the other side of the hill. He looked, and could just see some faint lights dancing and waving, and moving slowly in their direction. As they came nearer, sounds became audible too, and soon the dim lights and noises resolved themselves into a small group of people who were walking home across the hill towards the town. They walked quite near the watchers beneath the tree, swinging lanterns, which made soft and crazy lights dance among the trees and grass, chattering contentedly, and actually singing a song about how terribly nice everything was, how happy they were, how much they enjoyed working on the farm, and how pleasant it was to be going home to see their wives and children, with a lilting chorus to the effect that the flowers were smelling particularly nice at this time of year, and that it was a pity the dog had died, seeing as it liked them so much. Arthur could almost imagine Paul McCartney sitting with his feet up by the fire one evening, humming it to Linda, and wondering what to buy with the proceeds 
and thinking probably Essex. The masters of cricket, breathed Slarty Bartfast in sepulchral tones. Coming as it did so hard upon the heels of his own thoughts about Essex, this remark caused Arthur a moment's confusion. Then the logic of the situation imposed itself on his scattered mind, and he discovered that he still didn't understand what the old man meant. What? he said. The masters of cricket, said Slarty Bartfast again, and if his breathing had been sepulchral before, this time he sounded like someone in Hades with bronchitis. Arthur peered at the group and tried to make sense of what little information he had at his disposal at this point. The people in the group were clearly alien, if only because they seemed a little tall, thin, angular, and almost as pale as to be white, but otherwise they appeared remarkably pleasant. A little whimsical, perhaps. One wouldn't necessarily want to spend a long coach journey with them, but the point was that if they deviated in any way from being good, straightforward people, it was in, it was in being perhaps too nice, rather than not nice enough. So why all this rasping lung work from Slarty Bartfast, which would seem to more appropriate to a radio commercial for one of those nasty films about chainsaw operators taking their work home with them? Then this cricket angle was also a tough one. He hadn't quite fathomed the connection between what he knew as cricket and what... Slarty Bartfast interrupted his train of thought at this point, as if sensing what was going through his mind. The game you know as cricket, he said, and his voice still seemed to be wandering lost in subterranean passages, is just one of those curious freaks of racial memory which can keep images alive in the minds eons after their true significance has been lost in the mists of time. Of all the races in the galaxy, only the English could possibly revive the memory of the most horrific wars ever to sunder the universe and transform it into what I am afraid is generally regarded as an incomprehensibly dull and pointless game. I'm rather fond of it myself, he added, but in most people I, people's eyes you have been inadvertently guilty of the most grotesquely bad taste particularly the bit about the little red ball hitting the wicket. That's very nasty. Um, said Arthur, with a reflective frown to indicate that his cognitive synapses were coping with this as best they could. Um, and these said Slarty Bartfast, slipping back into crypt guttural and indicating the group of the cricket men who had just walked past them. These are the ones who started it all. And it will start tonight. Come, we will follow and see why. They slipped out from underneath the tree and followed the cheery party along the dark hill path. 
Their natural instinct was to tread quietly and stealthily in pursuit of their quarry, though, as they were simply walking through a recorded informational illusion, they could easily, as easily have been wearing euphoniums and woad for all the notice their quarry would have taken of them. Arthur noticed that a couple of members of the party were now singing a different song. It came lilting back to them through the soft night air and was a sweet romantic ballad which would have netted McCartney, Kent and Sussex and enabled him to put in a fair offer for most of Hampshire. You must surely know, said Slarty Bartfaster Ford, what it is that is about to happen. Me, said Ford, no. <laughs> course this is the moment <laughs> problems with live recordings sorry folks <laughs> okay now that's gone past me said ford no did you not learn ancient galactic history when you were a child i was in the cyber cubicle behind zaphod said ford it was very distracting which isn't to say that I didn't learn some pretty stunning things. At this point, Arthur noticed a curious feature to the song that the party was singing. The Middle Eight Bridge, which would have had McCartney firmly consolidated in Winchester and gazing intently over the Test Valley to the rich pickings of the New Forest beyond, had some curious lyrics. The songwriter was referring to meeting a girl not under the moon or beneath the stars, but above the grass, which struck Arthur as being a little prosaic. Then he looked up again at the bewilderingly blank sky and had the distinct feeling that there was an important point here, if only he could grasp what it was. It gave him a feeling of being alone in the universe, and he said so. No said Slarty Bartfast, with a slight quickening of his step. The people of Cricket have never thought to themselves, we are alone in the universe. They are surrounded by a huge dust cloud, you see, their single sun with its single world, and they are right out on the utmost eastern edge of the galaxy. Because of the dust cloud, there has been nothing to see in the sky. At night, it is totally blank. During the day, there is a sun, but you can't look directly at it, so they don't. They are hardly aware of the sky. It's as if they had a blind spot which extended 180 degrees from horizon to horizon. You see, the reason why they have never thought we are alone in the universe is that until tonight, they don't know about the universe. Until tonight. He moved on, leaving the words ringing in the air behind him. Imagine, he said, never even thinking we are alone, simply because it has never occurred to you to think that there's any other way to be. He moved on again. I am afraid this is going to be a little unnerving, he added. As he spoke, 
they became aware of a very thin, roaring scream high up on the sightless sky above them. They glanced upwards in alarm, but for a moment or two could see nothing. Then Arthur noticed that the people in the party in front of them had heard the noise, but that none of them seemed to know what to do with it. They were glancing around themselves in consternation, left, right, forwards, backwards, and even at the ground. It never occurred to them even once to look upwards. The profoundness of the shock and horror they emanated a few moments later when the burning wreckage of a spaceship came hurtling and screaming out of the sky and crashed about half a mile from where they were standing was something that you had to be there to experience. Some speak of the heart of gold in hushed tone, in hushed tones, some of the starship Bistromath. Many speak of the legendary and gigantic starship Titanic, a majestic and luxurious cruise liner launched from the great shipbuilding asteroid complexes of Actrefactoval some hundreds of years ago now, and with good reason. It was sensationally beautiful, staggeringly huge, and more pleasantly equipped than any ship in what now remains of history, See note later for Campaign for Real Time. But it had the misfortune to be built in the very earliest days of improbability physics, long before this difficult and cussed branch of knowledge was fully, or at all, understood. The designers and engineers decided, in their innocence, to build a prototype improbability field into it which was meant, supposedly, to ensure that it was infinitely improbable that anything would ever go wrong with any part of the ship. They did not realise that, because of the quasi-reciprocal and circular nature of all improbability calculations, anything that was infinitely improbable was actually very likely to happen almost immediately. The starship Titanic was a monstrously pretty sight as it lay beached like a silver Arcturian megavoid whale amongst the laser-lit tracery of its construction gantries. A brilliant cloud of pins and needles of light against the deep interstellar blackness. But when launched, it did not even manage to complete its very first radio message, an SOS, before undergoing a sudden and gratuitous total existence failure. However, the same event which saw the disastrous failure of one science in its infancy also witnessed the apiothis of another. It was conclusively proved that more people watched Tri-D TV coverage of the launch than, actu than actually existed at the time, and this has now been recognised as the greatest achievement ever in the science of audience research. Another spectacular media event of that time was the supernova, which the star Isoldins underwent a few hours later. Isoldins is the star around which most of the galaxy's major insurance underwriters live, or rather lived. 
But whilst these spaceships and, and other great ones which come to mind, such as the Galactic Fleet Battleships, the GSS Daring, the GSS Audacity, and the GSS Suicidal Insanity, are all spoken of with awe, pride, enthusiasm, affection, admiration, regret, jealousy, resentment. In fact, most of the better-known emotions the one which regularly commands the most actual astonishment was Cricket One. The first spaceship ever built by the people of Cricket. This is not because it was a wonderful ship. It wasn't. It was a crazy piece of near junk. It looked as if it had it, it looked as if it had been knocked up in somebody's backyard, and this was in fact precisely where it had been knocked up. The astonishing thing about the ship was not that it was done well, it wasn't, but that it was done at all. The astonishing thing about the ship was the period of time the period of time which had elapsed between the moment that the people of Cricket had discovered that there was such a thing as space and the launching of their first spaceship, which was almost exactly a year. Ford Prefect was extremely grateful, as he strapped himself in, that this was just another informational illusion and that he was therefore completely safe. In real life, it wasn't a ship he would have set foot in for all the rice wine in China. Extremely rickety was one phrase which sprang to mind, and please may I get out was another. This is going to fly, said Arthur, giving gaunt looks at the lashed-together pipework and wiring which festooned the cramped interior of the ship. Slutty Bartfast assured him that it would, that they were perfectly safe, and that it was all going to be extremely instructive and not a little harrowing. Ford and Arthur decided to just relax and be harrowed. Why not, said Ford, go mad. In front of them, and of course totally unaware of their presence for the very good reason that they weren't actually there, were the three pilots. They had also constructed the ship. They had been on the hill path that night, singing wholesome, heartwarming songs. Their brains had been very slightly turned by the nearby crash of the alien ship. They had spent weeks stripping every tiniest last secret out of the wreckage of that burnt spaceship, all the while singing lilting spaceship-stripping ditties. They had then built their own spaceship, and this was it. This was their ship, and they were currently singing a little song about that too, expressing the twin joys of achievement and ownership. The chorus was a little poignant, and told of their sorrow that their work had kept them such long hours in the garage, away from the company of their wives and children, who had missed them terribly, but had kept them cheerful by bringing them continual stories of how nicely the puppy was growing up. Pow! They took off. They roared into the sky like a ship that knew precisely what it was doing. No way! 
said Ford a while later, after they had recovered from the shock of acceleration and were climbing up out of the planet's atmosphere. No, no way, he repeated. Does anyone design and build a ship like this in a year? No matter how motivated, I don't believe it. Prove it to me and I still won't believe it. He shook his head thoughtfully and gazed out of a tiny port at the nothingness outside it. The trip passed uneventfully for a while, and Slarty Bartfast fast wound them through it. Very quickly, therefore, they arrived at the inner perimeter of the hollow spherical dust cloud which surrounded their sun and home planet, occupying, as it were, the next orbit out. It was more as if there was a gradual change in the texture and consistency of space. The darkness seemed now to thrum and ripple past them. It was a very cold darkness, a very blank and heavy darkness. It was the darkness of the night sky of cricket. The coldness and heaviness and blankness of it took a slow grip on Arthur's heart, and he felt acutely aware of the feelings of the cricket pilots, which hung in the air like a thick static charge. They were now on the very boundary of the historical consciousness of their race. This was the very limit beyond which none of them had ever speculated, or even known that there was any speculation to be done. The darkness of the cloud buffeted at the ship. Inside was the silence of history. Their historic mission was to find out if there was anything or anywhere on the other side of the sky from which the wrecked spaceship could have come. Another world, maybe, strange and incomprehensible, though this thought was to the enclosed minds of those who had lived beneath the empty sky of cricket. History was gathering itself to deliver another blow. Still the darkness thrummed at them, the blank enclosing darkness. It seemed closer and closer, thicker and thicker, heavier and heavier. And suddenly it was gone. They flew out of the cloud. They saw the staggering jewels of the night in their infinite dust, and their minds sang with fear. For a while they flew on, motionless against the starry sweep of the galaxy, itself motionless against the infinite sweep of the universe. And then they turned around. The men of cricket said, as they headed back for home, It'll have to go. On the way back, they sang a number of tuneful and reflective songs on the subjects of peace justice, morality, culture, sport, family life, 
and the total and complete obliteration of all other life forms. Slope of tea. So, you see, said Slarty Bartfast, slowly stirring his artificially constructed coffee and thereby also stirring the whirlpool interfaces between real and unreal numbers, between the interactive perceptions of mind and universe, and thus generating the restructured matrices of implicitly enfolded subjectivity which allowed his ship to reshape the very concept of time and space. How it is. Yes, said Arthur. Yes, said Ford. Uh, do I do with this piece of chicken? said Arthur. Slarty Bartfast glanced at him gravely. Toy with it, toy with it. He demonstrated with his own piece. Arthur did so, and felt the slight tingle of a mathematical function thrilling through the chicken leg as it moved four-dimensionally through what Slarty Bartfast had assured him was five-dimensional space. Overnight said Slarty Bartfast, the whole population of crickets was transformed from being charming, delightful, intelligent, if whimsical, interpolated Arthur, ordinary people, said Slarty Bartfast, into charming, delightful, intelligent, whimsical, manic xenophobes. The idea of a universe didn't fit into their world picture, so to speak. They simply couldn't cope with it. And so, charmingly, delightfully, intelligently, whimsically, if you like, they decided to destroy it. What's the matter now? I, I don't like this wine very much, said Arthur, sniffing it. Well, send it back. It's all part of the mathematics of it. Arthur did so. He didn't like the topography of the waiter's smile, but he never liked graphs anyway. Where are we going? said Ford. Back to the room of informational illusions, said Slarty Bartfast, rising and patting his mouth with the mathematical representation of a paper napkin. For the second half... "'The people of Cricket,' said his high-judgmental supremacy judiciary pag L.I.V.R., the learned, impartial, and very relaxed, chairman of the board of judges at the Cricket War Crimes Trial, "'are, well, you know, they're just a bunch of real sweet guys, you know, who just happen to want to kill everybody. Hell, I feel the same way some mornings. Shit!' Okay, okay, he continued, swinging his feet up onto the bench in front of him and pausing a moment to pick a thread off his ceremonial beach loafers. So, you wouldn't necessarily want to share a galaxy with these guys. This was true. The cricket attack on the galaxy had been stunning. 
Thousands and thousands of huge cricket warships had leapt suddenly out of hyperspace and simultaneously attacked thousands and thousands of major worlds, first seizing vital material supplies for building the next wave and then calmly zapping those worlds out of existence. The galaxy, which had been enjoying a period of unusual peace and prosperity at the time, reeled like a man getting mugged in a meadow. I mean, continued judiciary, judiciary Pag, gazing around the ultramodern, this was ten billion years ago when ultramodern meant lots of stainless steel and brushed concrete, and huge courtroom. These guys are just obsessed. This too was true, and is the only explanation anyone has yet managed to come up with for the unimaginable speed with which the people of Cricket had pursued their new and absolute purpose. The destruction of everything that wasn't Cricket. It was also the only explanation for their bewilderingly sudden grasp of all the hyper-technology involved in building their thousands of spaceships and their millions of lethal white robots. These had really struck terror into the hearts of everyone who had encountered them. In most cases, however, the terror was extremely short-lived, as was the person experiencing the terror. They were savage, single-minded flying battle machines. They wielded formidable multifunctional battle clubs, which, brandished one way, would knock down buildings, and brandished another way, fired blistering omni-destructo-zap rays, and brandished a third way, launched a hideous arsenal of grenades, ranging from minor incendiary devices to maxi-slaughter hypernuclear devices which could take out a major sun. Simply striking the grenades with the battle clubs simultaneously primed them and launched them with phenomenal accuracy over distances ranging from mere yards to hundreds of thousands of miles. Okay, said Judiciary Pag again. So, we won. He paused and chewed a little gum. We, we won, he repeated, but that's no big deal. I mean... A medium-sized galaxy against one little world. How long did it take us, uh, Clark of the Court? Milod, said the severe little man in black, rising. How long, kiddo? How long? It is a trifle difficult, Milod, to be precise in this matter. Time and distance. Um, relax, guy. Be vague. Be vague. I, I hardly like to be vague, my lad, over such a bite the bullet and be it. The clerk of the court blinked at him. It was clear that, like most of the galactic legal profession, he found Judiciary Pag, or Zippo Bic Bibrock 5 by 10 to the power of 8, as his private name was known, inexplicably to be a rather distressing figure. He was clearly a bounder and a cad. He seemed to think that the fact that he was the possessor of the finest legal mind ever discovered gave him the right to behave exactly as he liked. And, unfortunately, he appeared to be right. Um, well, Milan, very approximately 
2,000 years, the clerk murmured unhappily. And uh, how many guys zilched out? Um, two grillion, Millard. The clerk sat down. A hydrospectic photo of him at this point would have revealed that he was steaming slightly. Judiciary Pag gazed once more around the room, wherein the assembled hundreds of the very highest officials of the entire galactic administration, all in their ceremonial uniforms or bodies, depending on, upon metabolism and custom. Behind a wall of zap-proof crystal stood a representative group of the people of Cricket, looking with calm, polite, loathing, that all the aliens gathered to pass judgment on them. This was the most momentous occasion in legal history, and Judiciary Pag knew it. He took out his chewing gum and stuck it under his chair. That's a whole lot of stiffs, he said quietly. The grim silence in the courtroom seemed in accord with this view. So, like I said, these are a bunch of really sweet guys, but you wouldn't want to share a galaxy with them. Not if they're just going to keep at it. Uh, not if they're not going to learn to just relax a little. I mean, it's it's just going to be continual nervous time, isn't it, right? I mean, pow, 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 pow. Hey, when are the next coming at us? Peaceful coexistence is just right out, right? Uh, get me some water, somebody. Thank you. He sat back and sipped reflectively. Okay, he said. Hear me, hear me. It's like these guys, you know, are entitled to their own view of the universe. And according to their view, which the universe forced on them, right, they did right. Sounds crazy, but I think you'll agree. They believe in... He consulted a piece of paper which he found in the back pocket of his judicial genes. They, they believe in peace, justice, morality, culture, sport, family life, and the obliteration of all other life forms. He shrugged. I've heard a lot worse, he said. He scratched his crotch reflectively. Free yow, he said. He took another sip of water and then held it up to the light and frowned at it. He twisted it round. Hey, is is there something in this water? He said. Uh, no, my lad, said the court usher, who'd brought it to him rather nervously. Then take it away, snapped Judiciary Pig, Pag, and put something in it. I got an idea. He pushed away the glass and leaned forward. Hear me, hear me, he said. The solution was brilliant and went like this. The planet of cricket was to be encased for perpetuity in an envelope of slow time in which life would continue almost infinitely slowly. All light would be deflected around the envelope so that it would remain invisible and impenetrable. Escape from the envelope would be utterly impossible unless it were unlocked from the outside. 
When the rest of the universe came to its final end, when the whole of creation reached its dying fall, this was all, of course, in the days before it was known that the end of the universe would be a spectacular catering venture, and life and matter ceased to exist... Then, the planet of Cricket and its sun would emerge from its slow-time envelope and continue a solitary existence, such as it craved, in the twilight of the universal void. The lock would be on an asteroid which would slowly orbit the envelope, and the key would be the symbol of the galaxy, the Wicket Gate. By the time the applause in the court had died down, Judiciary Pag was already in the censo shower with a rather nice member of the jury that he'd slipped a note to half an hour earlier. Two months later... Zippo by Brock 5 by <clears throat> 5 times 10 to the power of 8 had cut the bottoms off his galactic state genes and was spending part of the enormous fee of his judgments his judgments commanded lying on a jeweled beach having essence of coalactin rubbed into his back by the same rather nice member of the jury she was a sulfinian girl from beyond the cloud worlds of yaga she had skin like lemon silk and was very interested in legal bodies. Did you hear the news? She said. We la, said Zippo Bybrock five times ten to the power of eight, and would you and, and would have had? <clears throat> excuse me. We la, said Zippo Bybrock five times ten to the power of eight, and you would have had to have been there to know exactly why he said this. None of this was on the tape of informational illusions and is all based on hearsay. No, he added, when the thing that had made him say wee la had stopped happening. He moved his body round slightly to catch the first rays of the third and greatest of primeval Vod's three suns, which was now creeping over the ludicrously beautiful horizon, and the sky now glittered with some of the greatest tanning power ever known. A fragrant breeze wandered up from the quiet sea, trailed along the beach, and drifted back to sea again, wondering where to go next. On a mad impulse, it went back up the beach again, and drifted back to sea. I, I hope it isn't good news, muttered Zippo Bybrock five times ten to the power of eight, because I, I don't think I could bear it. Your cricket judgment was carried out today said the girl sumptuously. There was no need to say such a straightforward thing sumptuously, but she went ahead and did it anyway, because it was that sort of a day. I heard it on the radio, she said, when I went back to the ship for the oil. Oh, hmm, murmured Zippo and rested his head back on the jewelled sand. Something happened, she said. Hmm? Just after the slow time envelope was locked, she said, and paused for a moment from rubbing in the essence of Quilactin, a cricket warship which had been missing, presumed destroyed, turned out to be just missing after all. It appeared and tried to seize the key. Zippo sat up sharply. Hey, what? he said. 
It's all right, she said in a voice which would have calmed the big bang down. Apparently there was a short battle. The key and the warship were disintegrated and blasted into the space-time continuum. Apparently they are lost forever. She smiled and ran a little more essence of quillactin onto her fingertips. He relaxed and lay back down. Do what you did a moment or two ago, he murmured. That? she said. No, 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 he said. That. She tried again. That? she said. Wee-la! Again, you had to be there. The fragrant breeze drifted up from the sea again. A magician wandered along the beach, but no one needed him. Nothing is lost forever, said Slarty Bartfast, his face flickering redly in the light of the candle which the robot waiter was trying to take away, except for the Cathedral of Chalism. The what? said Arthur with a start. The Cathedral of Chalism, repeated Slarty Bartfast. It was during the course of my researches at the Campaign for Real Time that I... The what? said Arthur again. The old man paused and gathered his thoughts for what he hoped would be one last onslaught on this story. The robot waiter moved through the space-time matrices in a way which spectacularly combined the surly with the obsequious, made a snatch for the candle, and got it. They had had the bill, had argued convincingly about who had had the cannelloni and how many bottles of wine they had had, and as Arthur had been dimly aware had thereby successfully manoeuvred the ship out of subjective space and into a parking orbit around a strange planet. The waiter was now anxious to complete his part of the charade and clear the bistro. "'All will become clear,' said Slarty Partfast. "'When?' "'In a minute. "'Listen, the time-streams are now very polluted. "'There's a lot of muck floating about in them, flotsam and jetsam, "'and more and more of it is now being regurgitated into the physical world. "'Eddie's in the space-time continuum, you see.' "'So I hear,' said Arthur. "'Look, where are we going?' said Ford, "'pushing his chair back from the table with impatience. "'Because I am eager to get there.' "'We are going,' said Slarty Bartfast in a slow, measured voice, "'to try and prevent the war robots of Cricket "'from regaining the whole of the key they need "'to unlock the planet of Cricket from the slow-time envelope "'and release the rest of their army and their mad masters.' "'It's just,' said Ford, "'that you mentioned a party.' "'I did.' said Slarty Barfast, and hung his head. He realised that it had been a mistake, because the idea seemed to exercise a strange and unhealthy fascination on the mind of Ford Prefect. The more that Slarty Bartfast unravelled the dark and tragic story of cricket and its people, the more Ford Prefect wanted to drink a lot and dance with girls. The old man felt that he should not have mentioned the party, until he absolutely had to. 
But there it was. The fact was out, and Ford Prefect had attached himself to it the way an Arcturian Megaleech attaches itself to its victim before biting its head off and making off with its spaceship. When, said Ford eagerly, do we get there? When I've finished telling you why we have to go there. I know why I'm going, said Ford, and leaned back, sticking his hands behind his head. He gave one of his smiles, which made people twitch. Slarty Bartfast had hoped for an easy retirement. He had been planning to learn to play the octavental hebephone, a pleasantly futile task, he knew, because he had completely the wrong number of mouths. He had also been planning to write an eccentric and relentlessly inaccurate monograph on the subject of equatorial fjords in order to set the record wrong about one or two matters he saw as important. Instead, he had somehow got talked into doing some part-time work for the campaign for real time and had started to take it all seriously for the first time in his life. As a result, he now found himself spending his fast-declining years combating evil and trying to save the galaxy. He found it exhausting work and sighed heavily. Listen, he said, at Camtim... What? said Arthur. The campaign for real time, which I will tell you about later. I noticed that five pieces of jetsam which had, been, which had, in relatively recent times, plopped back into existence, seemed to correspond to the five pieces of the missing key. Only two I could trace exactly. The wooden pillar, which appeared on your planet, and the silver bale. It seems to be at some sort of party... We must go there to retrieve it before the cricket robots find it. Or who knows what will happen? No, said Ford firmly. We must go to the party in order to drink a lot and dance with girls. But haven't you understood everything? I Yes, said Ford firmly. I have understood it all perfectly well. That's why I want to have as many drinks and dance with as many girls as possible while there are still any left. If everything you've shown us is true... True? Of course it's true. Well, then we don't stand a whelk's chance in a supernova. And what? said Arthur sharply again. He had been following the conversation doggedly up to this point and was not keen to lose the thread now. A whelk's chance in a supernova, repeated Ford without losing momentum. The... What's a whelk got to do with a supernova? said Arthur. It doesn't, said Ford levelly, stand a chance in one. He paused to see if the matter was now cleared up. The freshly puzzled looks clambering across Arthur's face told him that it wasn't. A supernova, 
said Ford as quickly and clearly as he could, is a star which explodes at almost half the speed of light and burns with the brightness of a billion suns and then collapses as a super-heavy neutron star. It's a star which burns up other stars. Got it? Nothing stands a chance in a supernova. I see, said Arthur. The... So why a whelk, particularly? Why not a whelk? It doesn't matter! Arthur accepted this, and Ford continued, picking up his early fierce momentum as best he could. The point is, he said, that people like you and me, Slarty Bartfast, and Arthur, particularly and especially Arthur, are just dilettants, eccentrics, layabouts, farterounds, if you like. Slarty Bartfast frowned, partly in puzzlement and partly in umbrage. He started to speak, is as far as he got. We're not obsessed by anything, you see, insisted Ford. And that's the deciding factor. We can't win against obsession. They care, we don't, they win. I care about lots of things, said Slarty Bartfast, his voice trembling partly with annoyance, but partly also with uncertainty. Such as? Well, uh, said the old man, life, the universe, everything, fjords. Would you die for them? Fjords? blinked Slarty Bartfast in surprise. No. Well, then. Wouldn't see the point, to be honest. And I still can't see the connection, said Arthur, with Welks. Ford could feel the conversation slipping out of his control and refused to be sidetracked by anything at this point. The point is, he hissed, that we are not obsessive people and we don't stand a chance against except for your sudden obsession with whelks, pursued Arthur, which I still haven't understood. Will you please leave the bloody whelks out of it? I will if you will, said Arthur. You brought the subject up. It was an error, said Ford. Forget the point. The point is this. He leant forward and rested his forehead on the tips of his fingers. What was I talking about? he said wearily. Let's just go down to the party, said Slarty Bartfast, for whatever reason. He stood up, shaking his head. I think, I think that was what I was trying to say, said Ford. For some unexplained reason, the teleport cubicles upon, upon the starship Bistromath were in the bathroom. Quick slap of water. <clears throat> Time travel is increasingly regarded as a menace. History is being polluted. 
The Encyclopedia Galactica has much to say on the theory and practice of time travel, most of which is incomprehensible to anyone who hasn't spent at least four lifetimes studying advanced hypermathematics. And since it was impossible to do this before time travel was invented, there is a certain amount of confusion as to how the idea was arrived at in the first place. One rationalisation of this problem states that time travel was, by its very nature, discovered simultaneously at all periods of history. But this is clearly bunk. The trouble is that a lot of history is now quite clearly bunk as well. Here is an example. It may not seem to be an important one to some people, but to others it is crucial. It is certainly significant in that it is this single event which caused the campaign for real time to be set up in the first place. Or, or is it last? It depends which way round you see history is happening, and this too is now an increasingly vexed question. There is, or was, a poet... His name was Lalafa, uh, and he wrote what are widely regarded throughout the galaxy as being the finest poems in existence, the Songs of the Long Land. They are, slash were, unspeakably wonderful. That is to say, you couldn't speak very much of them at once without being so overcome with emotion, truth, and a sense of the wholeness and oneness of things that you wouldn't pretty soon need a brisk walk around the block, possibly pausing at a bar on the way back for a quick glass of perspective and soda. They were that good. Lalifer had lived in the forests of the long lands of Ephra. He lived there and he wrote his poems there. He wrote them on pages made of dried habra leaves, without the benefit of education or correcting fluid. He wrote about the light in the forest and what he thought about that. He wrote about the darkness in the forest and what he thought about that. He wrote about the girl who had left him and precisely what he thought about that. Long after his death, his poems were found and wandered over. News of them spread like morning sunlight. For centuries they illuminated and watered the lives of many people whose lives might otherwise have been darker and drier. Then, shortly after the invention of time travel, some major correcting fluid manufacturers wondered whether his poems might have been better still if he had had access to some high-quality correcting fluid and whether he might be persuaded to say a few words to that effect. They travelled the time waves. They found him. They explained the situation, with some difficulty, to him, and indeed did persuade him. In fact, they persuaded him to such effect that he became extremely rich at their hands, and the girl about whom he was otherwise destined to write with such precision never got around to leaving him. And in fact, they moved out of the forest to a rather nice pad in town, and he frequently commuted to the future to do chat shows, on which he sparkled wittily. He never got around to writing the poems, of course, which was a problem. 
but an easily solved one. The manufacturers of correcting fluid simply packed him off for a week somewhere with a copy of a later edition of his book and a stack of dried habra leaves to copy them out onto, making the odd deliberate mistake and correction along the way. Many people now say that the poems are suddenly worthless. Others argue that they are exactly the same as they always were, so what's changed? The first people say that that isn't the point. They aren't quite certain what the point is, but they are quite sure that that isn't it. They set up the campaign for real time to try and stop this sort of thing going on. Their case was considerably strengthened by the fact that a week after they set themselves up, news broke that not only had the great cathedral of Chalism been pulled down in order to build a new ion for a refinery, but the construction of the refinery had taken so long and had had to extend so far back into the past to allow, to allow ion production to start on time that the cathedral of Chalism had now never been built in the first place. Picture postcards of the cathedral suddenly became immensely valuable. So, a lot of history is now gone forever. The campaign for real timers claimed that this, that just as easy travel eroded the differences between one country and another, and between one world and another, so time travel is now eroding the differences between one age and another. The past they say, is now truly like a foreign country. They do things exactly the same there. Arthur materialised, and did so with all the customary staggering about and clasping at his throat, heart and various limbs, which he still indulged himself in when... Which he, oh, sorry, I'll try that again. Arthur materialised, and did so with all the customary staggering about and clasping at his throat, heart and various limbs, which he still indulged himself in, whenever he made any of these hateful and painful materialisations that he was determined to not let himself get used to. He looked around for the others. They weren't there. He looked around for the others again. They still weren't there. He closed his eyes. He opened them. He looked around for the others. They obstinately persisted in their absence. He closed his eyes again. Preparatory to making this completely futile exercise once more, and because it was only then, whilst his eyes were closed, that his brain began to register what his eyes had been looking at whilst they were open. A puzzled frown crept across his face. So, he opened his eyes again to check his facts, and the frown stayed put. If anything, it intensified and got a good, firm grip. If this was a party, it was a very bad one. So bad, in fact, that everyone else had left. He abandoned this line of thought as futile. Obviously, this wasn't a party. It was a cave, or a labyrinth, or a tunnel, or, or something. There was insufficient light to tell. All was darkness, a damp, shiny darkness. 
the only sounds were the echoes of his own breathing, which sounded worried. He coughed very slightly, and then had to listen to the thin, ghostly echo of his cough trailing away amongst winding corridors and sightless chambers, as of some great labyrinth, and eventually returning to him via the same unseen corridors, as if to say, Yes? This happened to every slightest noise he made, and it unnerved him. He tried to hum a cheery tune, but by the time it returned to him, it was a hollow dirge and he stopped. His mind was suddenly full of images from the story that Slarty Bartfast had been telling him. He half expected to see lethal white robots step silently from the shadows and kill him. He caught his breath. They didn't. He let it go again. He didn't know what he did expect. Someone or something, however, seemed to be expecting him, for at that moment there lit up suddenly in the dark distance an eerie green neon sign. It said silently, You have been diverted. The sign flicked off again in a way which Arthur was not certain at all he liked. It flicked off with a sort of contemptuous flourish. Arthur then tried to reassure himself that this was just a ridiculous trick of his imagination. A neon sign is either on or off, depending on whether it has electricity running through it or not. There is no way, he told himself, that it could possibly affect the transition from one state to the other with a contemptuous flourish. He hugged himself tightly in his dressing gown and shivered, nevertheless. The neon sign in the depths now suddenly lit up, bafflingly, with just three dots and a comma. It was trying, Arthur realised, after staring at this perplexedly for a second or two, to indicate that there was more to come, that the sentence was not complete. Trying with almost superhuman pedantry, he further reflected or at least inhuman pedantry. The sentence then completed itself with these two words, Arthur Dent. He reeled. He steadied himself to take another clear look at it. It still said Arthur Dent, so he reeled again. Once again, the sign flicked off and left him blinking into the darkness with just the dim red image of his name jumping on his retina. Welcome, the sign now suddenly said. After a moment, it added, I don't think. The stone-cold fear which had been hovering around Arthur all this time, waiting for its moment, recognised that its moment had now come and pounced on him. He tried to fight it off. He dropped into a kind of alert crouch that he had once seen somebody do on television, but it must have been someone with stronger knees. He peered huntedly into the darkness. Uh, hello, he said. He cleared his throat and said it again, more loudly and without the er. At some distance down the corridor, it seemed suddenly as if somebody started to beat on a bass drum. He listened to it for a few seconds and realised that it was just his heart beating. 
He listened for a few seconds more, and realised that it wasn't his heart, it was somebody down the corridor beating on a bass drum. Beads of sweat formed on his brow, tensed themselves, and leapt off. He put a hand out onto the floor to steady his alert crouch, which wasn't holding up very well. The sign changed itself again. It said, Do not be alarmed. After a pause, it added, Be very, very frightened, Arthur Dent. Once again it flicked off. Once again it left him in the darkness. His eyes seemed to be popping out of his head. He wasn't certain if this was because they were trying to see more clearly or if they simply wanted to leave at this point. Hello? he said again, this time trying to put a note of rugged and aggressive self-assertion into it. Is anyone there? There was no reply. Nothing. This unnerved Arthur even more than a reply would have done, and he began to back away from the scary nothingness. And the more he backed away, the more scared he became. After a while, he realised that the reason for this was because of all the films he'd seen in which the hero backs further and further away from some imagined terror in front of him, only to bump into it coming up from behind. Just then, it suddenly occurred to him to turn round rather quickly. There was nothing there, just blackness. This really unnerved him, and he started to back away from that, back the way he had come. After doing this for a short while, it suddenly occurred to him that he was now backing towards whatever it was he had been backing away from in the first place. This, he couldn't help thinking, must be a foolish thing to do. He decided he would be better off backing the way he had been first backing, and then turned around again. It turned out at this point that his second impulse had been the correct one. Because there was an indescribably hideous monster dancing quietly behind him. Arthur yawed wildly as his skin tried to jump one way and his skeleton the other, whilst his brain tried to work out which of his ears most wanted it want most of sorry, whilst his brain tried to work out which of his ears it most wanted to crawl out of. Bet you weren't expecting to see me again, said the monster, which Arthur couldn't help thinking was a strange remark for it to make seeing as he had never met the creature before. He could tell that he hadn't met the creature before from the simple fact that up to now he was able to sleep at nights. It was... it was... it was... Arthur blinked at it. It stood very still. It did look a little familiar. A terrible, cold calm came over him as he realised that what he was looking at was a six-foot-high hologram of a housefly. He wondered why anybody would be showing him a six-foot-high hologram of a housefly at this time. He wondered whose voice he had heard. It was a terribly realistic hologram. It vanished. Or perhaps you remember me better, 
said the voice suddenly, and it was a deep, hollow, malevolent voice, which sounded like molten tar, glurping out of a drum with evil on his mind. As the rabbit! With a sudden ping, there was a rabbit there in the black labyrinth with him, a huge, monstrously, hideously soft and lovable rabbit, an image again, but one on which every single soft and lovable hair seemed like a real and single thing growing in its soft and lovable coat. Arthur was startled to see his own reflection in its soft and lovable, unblinking and extremely huge brown eye. "'Born in darkness,' rumbled the voice, "'raised in darkness!' One morning I poked my head for the first time into the bright new world and got it split open by what felt suspiciously like some primitive instrument made of flint, made by you, Arthur Dent, and wielded by you, rather hard as I recall. You turned my skin into a bag for keeping interesting stones in, I happen to know that because in my next life I came back as a fly again and you swatted me again. Only this time you swatted me with the bag you'd made of my previous skin. Arthur Dent, you are not merely a cruel and heartless man. You are also staggeringly tactless. The voice paused while Arthur gawped. I see you have lost the bag, said the voice. Probably got bored with it, did you? Arthur shook his head helplessly. <coughs> he wanted to explain that he had in fact been very fond of the bag and had looked after it very well and had, and had, had taken it with him wherever he went, but that somehow every time he travelled anywhere he seemed inexplicably to end up with the wrong bag and that curiously enough even as they stood there he was just noticing for the first time that the bag that he had with him at the moment appeared to be made out of a rather nasty fake leopard skin and wasn't the one he'd had a few moments ago before he arrived in this place whatever this place was and wasn't one that he would have chosen for himself and heaven knew what would be in it as it wasn't his and he would much rather have his original bag back except of course he was terribly sorry for having so peremptorily removed it or rather its component parts, i.e. the rabbit's skin, from its previous owner, viz. the rabbit whom he currently had the honour of attempting vainly to address. All he actually managed to say was, uh, Meet the newt you trod on, said the voice. I couldn't take some water, hold on. <coughs> Meet the newt you trod on, said the voice. And there was, standing in the corridor with Arthur, a giant green scaly newt. Arthur turned, yelped and leapt backwards, and found himself standing in the middle of the rabbit. He yelped again, but could find nowhere to leap to. That was me too, continued the voice, in a low menacing rumble, as if you didn't know. "'No!' said Arthur with a start. "'No!' 
An interesting thing about reincarnation, rasped the voice, is that most people, most spirits, are not aware that it's happening to them. He paused for effect. <coughs> as far as Arthur was concerned, there was already quite enough effect going on. I was aware, said the voice. That is, I became aware, slowly, gradually. He, whoever he was, paused again and gathered breath. I could hardly help it, could I, he bellowed, when the same thing kept happening over and over and over again. Every life I ever lived, I got killed by Arthur Dent. Any world, anybody, any time. I'm just getting settled down, along comes Arthur Dent, and Powie kills me. Hard not to notice. Bit of a memory jog, a bit of a pointer, a bit of a bloody giveaway. That's funny, my spirit would say to itself as it winged its way back to the netherworld after another fruitless, dent-end adventure into the land of the living. That man who just ran over me as I was hopping across the road to my favourite pond looked a little familiar. Gradually I got to piece it together, dent. You multiple me murderer. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> the echoes <clears throat> the echoes of his voice roared up and down the corridors. Arthur stood silent and cold, his head shaking with disbelief. <clears throat> Here's the moment, Dent, shrieked the voice. Now, oh God, reaching a feverish pitch of hatred. Here's the moment when at last I knew. It was indescribably hideous, the thing that suddenly opened up in front of Arthur, making him gasp and gargle with horror. But here's an attempt at a description of how hideous it was. It was a huge, palpitating, wet cave, with a vast, slimy, rough, whale-like creature rolling around it and sliding over monstrous white tombstones. High above the cave rose a vast promontory, in which could be seen the dark recesses of two fearful other caves, which Arthur Dent suddenly realised that what he was looking at was his own mouth, when his attention was meant to be directed at the live oyster that was being tipped helplessly into it. He staggered back with a cry and averted his eyes. When he looked again, the appalling apparition had gone. The corridor was dark and, briefly, silent. He was alone with his thoughts. They were extremely unpleasant thoughts, and would rather have had a chaperone. The next noise when it came was the low, heavy roll of a large section of wall trundling aside, revealing, for the moment, just dark blankness behind it. Arthur looked into it in much the same way that a mouse looks into a dark dog kennel. And the voice spoke to him again. Tell me it was a coincidence, Dent, it said. I dare you to tell me it was a coincidence. It was a coincidence, said Arthur quickly. It was not, came the answering bellow. 
It was, said Arthur. It was. <clears throat> if it was a coincidence, then my name, roared the voice, is not Agrajag. Presumably, said Arthur, you would claim that it was your name. Yes, hissed Agrajag, as if he had just completed a rather deft syllogism. Well, I'm afraid it was still a coincidence, said Arthur. Come here and say that, howled the voice in sudden apoplexy again. <coughs> Arthur walked in and said that it was a coincidence. Or at least he nearly said that it was a coincidence. His tongue rather lost its footing towards the end of the last word because the lights came up and revealed what it was he had walked into. It was a cathedral of hate. It was the product of a mind that was not merely twisted, but actually sprained. It was huge. It was horrific. It had a statue in it. We will come to the statue in a moment. The vast, incomprehensibly vast chamber looked as if it had been carved out of the inside of a mountain, and the reason for this was that it was precisely what it had been carved out of. It seemed to Arthur to spin sickeningly round his head as he stood and gaped at it. It was black. Where it wasn't black, you were inclined to wish that it was, because the colours with which some of the unspeakable details were picked out ranged horribly across the whole spectrum of eye-defying colours, from ultraviolet to infrared. The unspeakable details which these colours picked out were gargoyles which would have put Francis Bacon off his lunch. The gargoyles all looked inwards from the walls, from the pillars, from the flying buttresses, from the choir stalls towards the statue, to which we will come in a moment. And if the gargoyles would have put Francis Bacon off his lunch, then it was clear from the gargoyles' faces that the statue would have put them off theirs. Had they been alive to eat it, which they weren't, and had anybody tried to serve them some, which they wouldn't. Around the monumental walls were vast engraved stone tablets in memory of those who had fallen to Arthur Dent. The names of some of those commemorated were underlined and had asterisks, asterisks against them. So, for instance, the name of a cow which had been slaughtered and of which Arthur had happened to eat a fillet steak would have had the plainest engraving, whereas the name of a fish which Arthur had himself caught and then decided he didn't like and left on the side of a plate had a double underlining, three sets of asterisks, and a bleeding dagger added as decoration just to make the point. And what was more, most disturbing about all of this, apart from the statue, to which we are by degrees coming, was the very clear implication that all these people and creatures were indeed the same person, over and over again. And it was equally clear that this person was, however unfairly, extremely upset and annoyed. In fact, it would be fair to say that he had reached a level of annoyance the like of which had never been seen in the universe. 
It was an annoyance of epic proportions, a burning, searing flame of annoyance, an annoyance which now spanned the whole of time and space in its infinite umbrage. And this annoyance had been given its fullest expression in the statue in the centre of all this monstrosity, which was a statue of Arthur Dent, and an unflattering one. Fifty feet tall, if it was an inch, there was not an inch of it which wasn't crammed with insult to its subject matter. And fifty feet of that sort of thing would be enough to make any subject feel bad. From the small pimple on the side of his noise, nose to the poorish cut of his dressing, ground, <laughs> dressing gown, there was no aspect of Arthur Dent which wasn't lambasted and vilified by the sculptor. Arthur appeared as a gorgon, an evil, rapacious, ravening, bloodied ogre, slaughtering his way through an innocent one-man universe. With each of the thirty arms which the sculptor had, in a fit of artistic fervour, had decided to give him, he was either braining a rabbit, swatting a fly, pulling a wishbone, picking a flea out of his hair, or doing something which Arthur at first couldn't quite identify. His many feet were mostly stamping on ants. Arthur put his hands over his eyes, hung his head, and shook it slowly from side to side in sadness and horror at the craziness of things. And when he opened his eyes, there, in front of him, stood the figure of the man, or creature, or whatever it was, that he had supposedly been persecuting all this time. <laughs> said Agrajag. He, or it, or whatever, looked like a mad, fat bat. It waddled slowly around Arthur and poked at him with bent claws. Look, protested Arthur. Ha-ha! <laughs> explained Agrajag, and Arthur reluctantly accepted this on the grounds that he was rather frightened by this hideous and strangely wrecked apparition. Agrajag was black, bloated, wrinkled, and leathery. His bat wings were somehow more frightening for being the pathetic, broken, floundering things they were than if they had been strong, muscular beaters of the air. The frightening thing was probably the tenacity of his continued existence against all the physical odds. He had the most astounding collection of teeth. They looked as if they each came from a completely different animal, and they were arranged around his mouth at such bizarre angles, it seemed that if he ever actually tried to chew anything, he'd lacerate half his own face along with it, and possibly put out an eye as well. Each of his three eyes were small and intense and looked about as sane as a fish in a privet bush. I was at a cricket match, he rasped. This seemed on the face of it such a preposterous notion that Arthur practically choked. Not in this body, screeched the creature, not in this body. This, this is my last body, my last life. This is my revenge body, my kill Arthur Dent body. My last chance I had to fight to get it too. 
but... I was, roared Agrajag, at a cricket match. I had a weak heart condition. But what, I said to my wife, can happen to me at a cricket match as I'm watching what happens? Two people, quite maliciously, appear out of thin air just in front of me. The last thing I can't help but notice before my poor heart gives out in shock is that one of them is Arthur Dent, wearing a rabbit's bone in his beard. Coincidence? Yes, said Arthur. Coincidence! screamed the creature, painfully thrashing its broken wings and opening a short gash on its right cheek with a particularly nasty tooth. On closer examination, such as he'd been hoping to avoid, Arthur noticed that much of Agrajag's face was covered with ragged strips and black sticky plasters. He backed away nervously. He tugged at his beard. He was appalled to discover that, in fact, he still had the rabbit bone in it. He pulled it out and threw it away. "'Look,' he said, "'it's just fate playing silly buggers with you, with me, with me. "'It's complete coincidence. "'What have you got against me, Dent?' snarled the creature, "'advancing on him in a painful waddle. "'Nothing,' insisted Arthur. "'Honestly, nothing.' "'Agrajag fixed him with a beady stare.' Seems a strange way to relate to somebody you've got nothing against, killing them all the time. Very curious piece of social interaction, I would call that. I'd also call it a lie. But look, said Arthur, I- I'm I'm very sorry. There's been a terrible misunderstanding. Uh, I've got to go. H- have you got a clock? I'm meant to be helping save the universe. He backed away still further. Agrajag advanced still further. At one point, he hissed, at one point I decided to give up. Yes, I would not come back. Back, I would stay in the netherworld. And what happened? Arthur indicated with random shakes of his head that he had no idea and didn't want to have one either. He found that he had backed up against the cold, dark stone that had been carved by who knew what Herculean effort into a monstrosity, monstrous, monstrous travesty of his bedroom slippers. He glanced up at his own horrendously parodied image towering above him. He was still puzzled as to what one of his hands was meant to be doing. I got yanked involuntarily back into the physical world, pursued Agrajag, as a bunch of petunias in, I might add, a bowl. This particular happy little lifetime started off with me in my bowl, unsupported, 300 miles above the surface of a particularly grim planet. Not a naturally tenable position for a bowl of petunias, you might think. You'd be right. That life ended a very short while later.
300 miles lower. In, I might again add, the fresh wreckage of a whale, my spirit brother. He leered at Arthur with renewed hatred. On the way down, he hissed, I couldn't help noticing a flashy-looking white spaceship. Looking out of a port on this flashy-looking spaceship was a smug-looking Arthur Dent. Coincidence! Yes, yelped Arthur. He glanced up again and realised that the arm that had puzzled him was represented as wantingly calling into existence a bowl of doomed petunias. This was not a concept which leapt easily to the eye. I must go, insisted Arthur. You may go, said Agrajack. After I have killed you. No, 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 that won't be any use, explained Arthur, beginning to climb up the hard stone incline of his carved slipper. Because I have to save the universe, you see. I have to find a silver bale. That's the point. Tricky thing to do, dead. Save the universe, spat Agrajag with contempt. You should have thought of that before you started your vendetta against me. What's about the time you were on Stavromula Beta and someone... I've never been there, said Arthur. Tried to assassinate you, and you ducked. Who do you think the bullet bit? What did you say? Never been there, repeated Arthur. What are you talking about? I have to go. Agrajag stopped in his tracks. You must have been there. You were responsible for my death there, as everywhere else. An innocent bystander, he quivered. I've never even heard of the place, insisted Arthur. I've certainly never had anyone try to assassinate me other than you. Perhaps I go there later, do you think? Agrajag blinked slowly in a kind of frozen logical horror. You haven't been to Stavrobula Beta yet? He hissed. No, said Arthur. I don't know anything about the place. Certainly never been to it, and I don't have any plans to go. Oh, oh, you go there all right, muttered Agrajag in a broken voice. You, you go there all right. Oh, Zark! He tottered and stared wildly about him at his huge cathedral of hate. I've, I've brought you here too soon! He started to scream and bellow. I, I brought you here to Zarking soon! Suddenly he rallied and turned a baleful, hating eye on Arthur. I'm, I'm going to kill you anyway, he roared, even if it's a logical impossibility. I'm going to Zarking, well, try! I'm going to blow this whole bloody mountain up, he screamed. Let's see you get out of this one, Dent! He rushed in a painful, waddling hobble up what appeared to be a small, black sacrificial altar. He was shouting so wildly now that he was really carving his face up very badly. 
Arthur leapt down from his vantage place on the carving of his own foot and ran to try and restrain the three-quarters crazed creature. He leapt upon him and brought the strange monstrosity crashing down on top of the author. Agrajag screamed again, thrashed wildly for a brief moment, and then turned a wild eye on Arthur. "'You know what you've done,' he gurgled painfully. "'You've, you've only gone and killed me again. "'I mean, what do you want from me? Blood?' "'He thrashed again in a brief apoplectic fit, "'quivered and collapsed.' smacking a large red button on the altar as he did so. Arthur started with horror and fear, first at what he appeared to have done, and then at the loud sirens and bells that suddenly shattered the air to announce that some clamouring emergency. He stared wildly around him. The only exit appeared to be the way he came in. He pelted towards it, throwing away the nasty fake leopard-skin bag as he did so. As he dashed randomly, haphazardly through the labyrinthine maze, he seemed to be pursued more and more fiercely by klaxons, sirens and flashing lights. Suddenly he turned a corner and there was light in front of him. It wasn't flashing. It was daylight. And that's where we'll leave it. It's been a longer reading than normal, but uh, we kind of got into it a bit with Agrajag there towards the end. <clears throat> Apologies for the coughing and spluttering, but uh, the allergies that I've had of late haven't quite all gone away. And uh, Agrajag's voice brought up quite a bit of interesting stuff in the meantime. Uh, thank you so much for joining this evening. We are well through uh, Life, the Universe and Everything. Uh, I think another reading or two will see us uh, to the end of that book. Um, but thank you very much, as always, for joining this evening. I, I get a huge kick out of this. I really do enjoy the fact that I've got so many people from all over the world uh, watching in and, and uh, picking up on it later. I'll get this uh, edited into the podcast version and posted on, on uh, the various channels as soon as possible. But um, thanks again for a fantastic evening, everybody. Um, and thanks for sticking with it all the way through. And uh, I'll see you in a week's time. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs>